This podcast is powered by The Plug. Hey, podcast listening people, Connor Doobie here. Hope you're having a phenomenal week out there and really appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you do yourself and do us a small favor wherever you're listening. First off, be sure you're subscribed on all your favorite podcast apps. And please, please leave us a five-star review if you like the show. My name is Connor Doobie, and I'm here each and every week to bring you valuable insights, resources, tools, and stories from the local Colorado community of leaders, entrepreneurs, authorities, and experts. And uh, I have a great episode for you today. Mary Grothy is a former mid-market B2B SaaS rep who, after selling millions in revenue and breaking multiple records, um, is uh, uh, formed her own business, Sales BQ, an outsourced rev ops firm of fractional VPs of sales, sales operations, CMOs who serve companies. Uh, and uh, she's just the authentic- authenticity of her message and uh, the podcast in whole uh, was uh, very much appreciated. I learned a lot and uh, definitely, definitely uh, had some major mindset shifts. So I cannot wait to share that with you. Before we dive in, if you have guests you recommend, send them over to us via email, milehighmentors at gmail.com. Uh, connect with us on all your favorite social media uh, platforms. We tend to use Instagram quite a bit. We use LinkedIn a lot, uh, but you can always find us at Mile High Mentors. If you want to collaborate with us, if you want to, you know, want to interview us on your show and uh, do some vice versa recommendations, make sure that you uh, follow us, find us there. And uh, on top of that as well, if you're interested in uh, sponsoring, partnering on the show, then uh, you can always reach out to us. We're always open to those collaborations. Uh, secondarily, make sure you follow the producer, Julius Hinton, at Julius Hinton on your favorite uh, uh, platforms. And you can always find me too on all your favorite social platforms, Connor Doobie, at Connor Doobie. Links are in the descriptions, my friends. And uh, with Without a further ado, please give it up to my friend, Mary Grothy on the Mile High Mentors podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time. The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com. Click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer. And how long ago did you start your podcast? Oh gosh, I think a year now year ago. Mm-hmm. What have you found? What have been, you know, your unique, I've been doing it for four years and you know, what's your experience um, been with podcasting so far? I wasn't sure what I wanted it to be when we were in our first season. And I thought if I were the listener, what would I want? And a lot of the early 
early episodes were super short, less than 15 minutes, less than 10 minutes. I was looking for that quick hit. Let me give you the best sales advice that I can before you start your day. And we recorded video and audio. We were promoting it on multiple platforms. It's it was slow to take off. And so I said, okay, we need to have guests. We need to change this. But this is the funny part. We started to have guests, which means we got a lot of traction. We increased our downloads. But now the most popular episodes are the ones in the beginning. And that's what people are asking for more of. And so it makes me laugh. But anyway, I think uh, what I'm learning is just to mix it up. I think that doing different types of quick hit, short, podcasts and naming it something different so people know hey this is just a and um, maybe a five minute how to or get started your day with this etc and then going into the longer ones with interviews I think it's good to do mixture but I don't know what about you you've, you've got way more skin in the game than me four years <laughs> doing this probably a lot more downloads than we do I don't it's it's just it's funny you mentioned that too it's like some of the content that I've put out over the last few years, whether it was a podcast or just a YouTube video that I did. And you go back and some of the ones where you're like, nobody's going to like this. Like, this isn't that great. And it's like your best performing, most downloaded, most engaged piece of content that's out there. And it's like, that's the thing is like, you never know until you just start putting yourself out there. So yeah, I mean, from a personal perspective, I didn't come from great connections from uh, you know, a lot of wealth and family connections and all that. I came from a lower middle class family and podcasting has just from the authority, I've gotten speaking engagements, conferences. I've been interviewed on hundreds of podcasts. Mm-hmm. I've got authority in a unique way, even though there's millions in my same industry. And um, it's just one of those things that podcasting does that a lot of other things don't. So and we're still so early into it also, you know? Yeah, there's still a lot left to learn. And like you, all of my following and brand and everything certainly was not handed over. Uh, That has been through grit and perseverance, not giving up, building that over time. Did you start building brand and following and content in your former sales roles? Or was this kind of something that you were, you know, kind of forced into when you started building your company and building SalesBQ? I was a very early adopter for LinkedIn. And I remember sitting in a sales training class put on by Dale Carnegie back in maybe 2008. And the instructor was talking about LinkedIn at that time. I had never heard of it. And I don't even think I had a Facebook page back then. I was like not into social media. I didn't really understand why would somebody want to just put everything in their life out there for everyone else to see. I was a pretty private person back then. And so I heard the instructor say, anyone who's anyone in the professional world will have a profile on LinkedIn. And I thought, well, gosh, okay, I guess I have to go create one. And so I created one really early on. And I've always loved LinkedIn. LinkedIn for me, has been a place where I built a brand from a very young age and early in my career. I wanted to be a value add for people before that was a thing. And I think it all stems from my fear as a salesperson. I hate annoying people. I hate interrupting them. I hate them seeing me as a waste of their time. And because I'm so sensitive to those things, I care so deeply about being a value add in their life. I want everyone's life to be better because I'm in it. And so I learned that if I can be a thought provoker and a thought leader and to engage people in conversation to do something a little bit different, well, LinkedIn was a great platform for that. So very early in my sales career, I started 
purposefully connecting. And back when you could invite people to the, to the platform, do you remember that? And like upload your contacts and create an email. Blast, invite. Send a giant email blast. <laughs> like I'm on LinkedIn. It's like, oh, what is this LinkedIn thing? People don't realize it's been around for, you know, as long as it has been. I'm, I'm like you, I was early. I created my first LinkedIn profile when I was like 15, I think. And that was just because my dad was driving me to do that for career purposes when I was in, you know, when I was younger. Yeah. Well, it served me really well. I mean, I made a lot of money on LinkedIn with just communicating and connecting with people that cared to hear a more important, important message. It was easy for me to talk about the pains and problems that I solved. I was an ambassador for the company I was selling for an evangelist. I cared about what we did. I was passionate about it and I sold payroll and HR services, which is not something that you're normally super passionate about, but Hey, I fell in love with it. I connected purposefully with all targeted connections and I was making sure that every HR and payroll and CFO and finance person that I came across and that I knew in my territory that we were connected and then they would digest and engage in the content and they saw me as a value add then and not as a salesperson. And I feel like with their guard lowered, I was getting inbound leads on LinkedIn a lot. I was engaging in really great conversations before, again, LinkedIn changed. Now salespeople just spam everybody on LinkedIn. But the message tool used to actually be very purposeful and work brilliantly before bots and <laughs> everything else. But I loved it. I mean, it's I've always Always, I've always played on that platform. And even with SalesBQ now, I was really fortunate in the first year of running SalesBQ. I think by the end of that first year, I had maybe nine or 10,000 uh, connections on LinkedIn. And that was great. I mean, it's, it's really been a beautiful platform for us. Yeah. So you had already started building there. And then by the time you were ready to launch your own business, you had the awareness already. You had an audience to start with. You had people to go network with. That's the beauty of sales, no matter what industry you're in, right? Did, were you passionate about sales like early on? Like, did you always kind of plan coming into sales? How, how did that become a, you know, your career at this point in time? A lot of people growing up would use that sentence, man, you should be in sales when you grow up. But I never knew what that meant. Or a lawyer. They said lawyer. <laughs> lawyer or sales, right? Sales? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm really great at uh, arguing my point. <laughs> but I heard it a lot, but I never understood it. I would have appreciated if people told me the qualities that I had or that they were viewing in experiencing and helped me understand why that would make for a great career in sales. But uh, I never saw myself as wanting to go into the profession. I grew up in the performing arts. I didn't know anything about professional workforce, about sales. I didn't know what it was. But when I was 22, I really had been on my own for a while. And I had worked a lot of part-time jobs. I I left college. I went for a semester and it just wasn't for me. I was a straight A student in high school, 4.2 GPA, top 10% of my class. Um, I mean, just great, great accolades in high school, but things really went downhill for me after that. But I ended up just exiting out of college. I did a semester, like this is not for me. I, funny story. I actually broke a test tube in chemistry and it was 16 cents and I got put on a, a hold. I couldn't register for classes until I paid my 16 cent balance. I'm like, whatever. It's universe telling me like, get out of here. But I went and pursued a bunch of part-time jobs and just really tried to get by. And when I was 22, I came across an ad in the newspaper, that thing the newspaper. And I said, wow, $13 an hour. That sounds like a great wage. And I'm going to go interview for this position. And the 
sales manager was interviewing me for a sales admin role, being administrative support for the team. And he saw something in me. I didn't know what I had. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm, I grew up professionally trained in the performing arts, was a dancer and singer, like whatever. But he saw it and he brought me in. He happened to be the number one sales manager in the country. I got to go into an admin role supporting the number one sales team in the country. I felt like I got to go to get an MBA in sales before I ever sold anything. So two years in that role, I loved it. Read a lot of books, took a lot of classes on sales. And then I earned a spot on the team. And when I was in the first month or so in that role, I still didn't really identify as a salesperson. Like, this is me. This is my future. It took me a few months in the role to really see, like, I think I could do this. And the way that I clued into it was I, in order to, for my training, for my role, I asked if I could go out in the field a couple of times just to shadow the salespeople. And I found myself naturally with my inside voice because I wasn't allowed to talk. They're like, you can go, but you can't say anything. Um, but I, in my inside voice, I found myself selling. I found myself trying to solve problems. I found myself actually saying the words that they were saying, of course, with my inside voice. And that's where I started to say, maybe I could do that job. And one of the perks of being a sales admin was being able to com do commission reports and, and file those with corporate. And so when I saw some of those reps making in one month, what I was making in an entire year, like I grew up, um, especially in my teenage years uh, in, in pretty decent poverty <laughs> conditions and had to work and support myself. I had fully supported myself since I was, I started working when I was 15 and had a job and I paid all of my bills and bought my own car and paid for my own insurance and even paid rent to my parents for the short time that I was staying there in high school. And so for me, it was just such an amazing moment to be like, whoa, these people make well over six figures. And I realized at that point, like maybe I have a talent, maybe I have a desire to do this, but I don't want to spoil the whole story for you. One month in the role, I was 24 years old. I became the number one rep. My first year, my quota was 150,000. I sold 758,000, which was more than number two or three combined. And you get cool opportunities when you do that. Corporate called on me. I got to help reshape the entire sales process and methodology for that company in our mid-market division. And it was really an exciting career. What was it that you felt skyrocketed that success so early on? There's, there was a fire inside of me. I grew up in a family where I was the youngest of four big spread in the ages my parents ran a small business. They really weren't around. And unfortunately, my home was filled with abuse and alcoholism. And it was a very tough childhood. There are some really great, awesome memories, but it was tough. I fought for attention. I fought for love. I fought to be recognized. And so I started learning about performance-based love just naturally. I'm like, if I do this, then maybe you will love me or I will get attention or I will get recognition or I'll get some of your time. And that deeply got ingrained into my DNA. And when I I went into sales, it was almost an addiction to get recognized, to get people's time. I'm extremely competitive and I felt like everything was a competition, getting meetings booked, just getting anyone to say yes to me. I feel like I was deprived for so many years. <laughs> This sounds so crazy, but I know a lot of people share this story. I've heard other salespeople tell me, like, I had a rough childhood too, and that's why I'm so good in sales. 
but it's addicting and it felt it filled a void and it felt incredible a lot of validation a lot of is is your story similar yeah yeah well i'm just saying there's a i mean i've worked with hundreds of salespeople over the year. I did door-to-door sales for two and a half years while I was working my way through college. And so, yeah, I mean, somewhat similar to yours, but I find that too with a lot of really successful salespeople is um, you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta have kind of a unique mentality and, and, and a different drive um, to be great at sales than like anything else. Yeah. Look, it was two things for me. I wanted people's lives to be better because I was in it. And that meant solving their problems. So I had to be a super, super smart ninja. I had to know how our products and services made people's lives better. I had to be able to articulate. I needed to build trust very quickly. And so for me, it was all about the passion, conviction, and enthusiasm. And the passion for really being in love for the product and service that I sold and and how it made people's lives better. But the conviction and being able to show them exactly how and the enthusiasm of transferring the excitement for me to them on getting started and and earning their business. And so much, um, every time I won a sale, the release of emotion that would happen inside of me because I just felt like for so many years, I was never good enough. And you take this type of person like me and put me in a sales role. I happened to do really well. And it just became a competition with myself. I rose so far up the ranks. The gap was so big behind the next person. I just started trying to top my number from the month before and compete with myself. And it was, it was addicting it was super fun. There was a lot of great success with it, but I also turned into a little bit of a monster that I had to have some course correction later in life. But I really think that was it. I think it was drive and then the PCE, the passion, conviction, and enthusiasm, and just being really smart. People don't want to buy from ignorant or mediocre salespeople. They want a trusted advisor. They want you to be the end-all be-all. They want you to solve their problems and make them feel super comfortable engaging in that decision. And when you said became a monster, what do you mean by that? Elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, um, I'm a Christian woman now, but that changed for me later in life. And I had a lot of unlearning and healing to do from my childhood. Um, In our house, we watched R-rated movies as young as five or six years old. And I didn't have a filter. And there was also just a, a lot of profanity in my house growing up. And... I was exposed to things that children just shouldn't be exposed to. And when you grow up in that environment, I didn't have very good understanding of how to be a good human being. But thankfully, I was made with a really kind heart. It just took a really long time for my heart and heart to be softened. And I was on a mission for years. I felt so deprived of anyone thinking I was good enough that when I say I became a monster, I wasn't a great person all the time. Um, You know, there's part of me, like I said, that with the heart that I was given, I really poured that out with my clients and my work and in my profession and all that was very genuine. But internally with my peers and also with my competitors, I wanted to crush everybody because I just felt like the only way I can feel good about myself is if I'm absolutely on top of the mountain, number one, and I don't even want to be a close race. Really, all that I was trying to prove is that I loved myself, and I didn't. Um, I found so many imperfections. I was trying to just fill an empty well with things that could never 
or quenched my thirst. And unfortunately, I had the mouth of a sailor. I spoke behind people's backs. I was idolizing things of this world, um, really worshiping fame, recognition, and money. And those aren't the things that we were <laughs> built and made to worship, <laughs> but I was, and I was going down a really crazy path for a long time. And I worked hard. I partied hard. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people do that in their 20s and really self-discovery and figuring out who Especially they are. in sales. Oh, I know the lifestyle that comes with it and those President's Club conferences, like the biggest recipe for disaster ever. It makes a lot of really good looking people who make a lot of money, <laughs> alcohol, no curfew, and like in a gorgeous destination. And by the way, they're all in their swimsuits. So you just pour all that together. Like it just, yeah, I mean, the industry... I'm so pleased that there are so many people now that are reshaping the perception of sales. So many big, loud, bold, courageous voices on the female side, on women in sales that are taking the bro culture out. But then to see people like John Barrow step up and hit the bro culture head on. It's like, we are getting this out of the sales profession. I met Dale Dupree yesterday, who's leading the sales rebellion, which is about living your best life. Oh, and by the way, you happen to be a top performing salesperson but you're actually a really great human being first. And I didn't grow up in sales that way. The way that I saw high-performing sales culture was extremely cutthroat and it was do whatever it takes to win, include some days working, you know, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. Um, there were a lot of unhealthy habits that I allowed to happen. And, and I think that's what really made me that monster. So I guess without a lot of the resources that modern sellers have now and access to information too, probably more access to information than when, when you were uh, really getting started at the top, top of your game, um, but also struggling emotionally. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. I thought that was really incredible um, and, uh, and very insightful as well is you, a couple things. People see those that are succeeding, crushing it, doing awesome, but don't realize how broken and empty they actually could be on the inside. And there's, you know, the Instagram culture, right? You see someone who's flashy doing great stuff. It's like, you don't know what's going on inside that person's heart and their head. So that's amazing that you're willing to share that. How did you make those shifts? Um, you know, and, and what was that transition like from being a shitty person, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> from, from, from just where you were in that state to kind of where you are now. You seem like you've um, been able to reflect on that and have a lot more insight on your personal well-being and your emotional well-being than maybe those early days in sales. Yeah, it's the uh, common, I had to hit rock bottom. And I know my rock bottom looks so different from a lot of people, but I was really successful. I mean, according to the definition that this world lays out, like I really made it. And I was in my 20s. I was in my late 20s. And I know that there were a lot of people that looked up to me. There were people that were in my immediate friend circle and family circle and looking at me like, holy cows, you know, whatever, one of the most successful people. But I'd go home and cry. And I was, I was alone. Um, I, I was destructive in every personal relationship that I had. I found myself as a codependent. I found myself having personal relationships that emulated the personal relationships I had growing up because I didn't know what a healthy, normal relationship looked like. And I just would work myself to the point of exhaustion. But I, I, um, I just, I had an event happen that I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but I had an event happen that 
stopped everything in my life. And God has a very interesting way of getting our attention. And it was the biggest blessing of what could have ever happened to me because I was a freight train without brakes and I was going down the track so fast and I was on a really, really, really bad path. And when my life stopped, I just had a moment to pause and say, there has to be something more because I went out and did everything that everyone in this world told you that you're supposed to do. And I did it and I'm so unhappy. And so at that point I went to my friend who, he used to be a pastor and I just asked him to speak truth to me. And I was 29 years old and um, pretty much just on my knees because I couldn't, I didn't even have the strength to stand. And I really was at the end. And I said, this life isn't even worth living. I did everything that everybody told me I was supposed to do. And I'm so successful and I hate myself. And it was a moment where he literally opened the Bible and started reading from page one. And I felt like a child just sitting there. And so for me, just the truth being, I was just woken up and my journey really started there. And it was a journey of self-discovery and learning and education. And um, what I became really passionate about early is not just reading the word, but living the word and setting the example. So it is interesting now my life is completely turned around. Um, I would still <laughs> humbly say, I think that we are very successful at the world's definition, but I don't care about those numbers. I don't care about our top line revenue growth, being a CEO of a company now two and a half years. And we don't set goals based on our top line revenue. We only base company growth goals on the success that we get with our clients. But I'm married now. I have a beautiful home. I have a gorgeous three-year-old son that I'm absolutely obsessed with. I also feel very compelled that I, even as a Christian woman, like I don't want to shove Christianity down people's throats. I just wanted to hear my story or let me just lead by example. Um, actions speak way louder than words. And I know that I just use the heart, that, the heart that God gave me and it's to love and to serve. And I don't need to be walking around quoting scripture. It's just, I need to live it. And then I, when people say, well, why is she different? Then there's an invitation. But for me, I know you didn't maybe ask that question specifically, but that's the path. I just went down. Um, this is the life that was for me. And I'm so excited to show up to it every day and to humble myself and just make sure that I'm serving other people. But two and a half years now in uh, CEO, I'm... I'm so happy. My heart is so filled with joy. There are just days that I will cry because I'm so grateful that this is the life that I get to have. I think that's amazing. And I think, I think it's important too for people listening. I, and I've had so many conversations. I'm, I'm sure you have too with peers of yours and industry peers of ours mm -hmm. who made it they made it They're, They made it to the top of the mountain. And then they're so depressed, so lonely, so miserable, so empty, um, turned around and then filled their vessel. In your case, it was, you know, religion It was your Christianity. Um, some people have different vehicles, different tools. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe you become a Buddhist, maybe whatever your, whatever your channel is. I think, um, knowing of self and fulfillment of self before fulfillment of anything else, your bank account, fulfillment of your business success. Um, you know, I, I was, I'm so grateful that I get to do these interviews because I'm 26, right? So like hearing these stories 
and kind of on my upward trajectory and other people listening to this as well, whatever stage you're at in your life, hearing that is so important. Realizing, take the step back. You know, you don't need to work 18 hours a day. Um, you're not as effective as you think you're being. You're not as fulfilled as you think you're going to be once you get that fat check in your bank account and you make six figures, all that good stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, but I think, you know, and the, the crazy thing that I proved myself, so giving you a timeline here, I had yeah. five years with that Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company. I left for a few years, became an entrepreneur and started doing business strategy work. It was during that time I hit my rock bottom, even at that young age, 27, 28 years old running a business. And then I... <clears throat> I met my now husband and I was a starving entrepreneur. So I wanted to go back to that payroll company so that I could have a few really high earning years. And that's what I did. But I was a Christian the second time I went back. I was older, wiser. I was now married and I went to work for the exact same company. And that was really scary to me because I had some of my former peers that still worked there. And I was scared when I came back because I was such a changed woman. And I was scared because I didn't know what their perception of me was. And I also had a reputation from the past. And I know that there was a lot of excitement about my number one sales rep and selling millions and breaking all these records. But I know I wasn't always kind to everybody. And that was so important for me to make everything right. But I thought, you know, it's, it's just going to, they are going to have to see it. They're going to have to see it. But the cool part is, I sold millions again and I broke records again and I, and I was a good person while I did it and I didn't work as many hours. I was just smarter and I had more wisdom and I made a commitment to my husband that I wasn't going to be that workaholic and I went through it differently. But guess what? I still had tremendous results and that's where I want people to feel encouraged. Like you can win being a crappy person and mean to people and ultra competitive and crushing people along the way, or you can win by actually loving and serving people. And I'll tell you which one feels better when you get to the top. Anyway, that's great that you're 26 because I remember back, that was 10 years ago for me, which like scares the crap out of me here <laughs> saying that like, I don't want to age anymore. I have a problem with that right now, but only as old as you feel and act. <laughs> People think I'm like, people think I'm 36 or like in my forties because I'm an old soul apparently. <laughs> but you so know, congrats, congrats to you. It's, you're just in such a perfect part of your life. Like to have, I wish somebody could have spoken this truth to me at 26. Now, would I have listened to them? I'm not sure. But my hope is that somebody would have tried and been persistent and worked with me, but they didn't. I'm just so thankful I found it on my own, but it is amazing. I hope there is somebody listening that's like, I'm not on a good path right now, but you mean I could still win not being a monster? Even yes. if you're 46, 56, I, I, I think from consuming and researching enough, yeah, absolutely. You can always make pivots. You can always change. You can always adapt. We're humans. That's what we're built for, adaptation, right? I mean, look, recent events speak very, very well to this. Um, you know, one thing I was interested in asking you on is women in sales and even just sales in general, people have self, such a dis, disdain, is that the right word? Disdain for sales. And I believe it's one of the most powerful skill sets you can learn, whether you want to be an employee, whether you want to be a business owner, you want to, um, 
whatever, whatever you want to do, sales is one of the most important skill sets. So how would, how would you teach people on that? Like how to overcome that disdain for sales and advice you'd probably give for um, young women who are maybe considering sales. Maybe they just started their sales career. Um, you know, especially right now, a lot of industries are disrupted, not to make this a long tailed question, but um, it's important to know, like so many people are laid off, furloughed and what position is always viable sales in any economy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm such an advocate for salespeople because I am a salesperson and I was a high performing salesperson, number one rep in a big company. And I think about what it really takes to be successful. And so I always caution people. I do believe some people are cut out for the profession and other people just are not. And you've got to be really honest with yourself, whether no matter what gender you are, uh, no matter what you've done in the past, it's if you are a 26 year old male, former athlete, like the profile, you know, dominant driver, like that's what they've always wanted to hire in sales roles. I mean, I get it, but you, you've got to have the DNA, DNA of a salesperson to be successful. And there's different types of salespeople. And I think if you're looking at getting into sales, if you really want to set yourself up for success, you have to identify with what type of salesperson you are. So let me break it down for you. There's a sales cycle. So there are sales roles specifically built for what we call top of funnel. So it's more of a hunting role. You might be working closely in tandem with marketing. You could be getting inbound leads and harvesting them and qualifying them, or you could be doing outbound prospecting. Outbound prospecting is one of the hardest components of sales. It doesn't come naturally for a lot of people. It's full of rejection. You have to think on your feet. You have to be able to pivot quickly. You can't get triggered. And there are very few people that can really master outbound sales. It's very difficult. I'm one of those people that gets a thrill out of it and loved mastering it and enjoyed having it be part of my role but not everyone's cut out for it. So one of the biggest failure points that I see with people trying to break into sales is they get put into a BDR SDR role, which requires outbound. Now, if it's a BDR SDR role that is inbound harvesting and qualification, it's a little bit different. So I, I would really encourage you to identify with which part of the sales cycle are you more comfortable with because after hunting goes into deep discovery and solution presentation so it's being able to truly uncover and come in with curiosity and be amazing at asking questions and also just have great acumen do you understand the day in the life of the person that's potentially buying from you do you get what is happening as a result of their current condition do you understand how to take them from their current state to desired future state that is your responsibility how great are you at uncovering that asking questions that's right. The lawyer comment earlier made me laugh. Can you build a case? Can you build a case that makes sense for both parties to say yes to doing something different than what they're doing right now? And by the way, choosing you to do something different. Then there's the component of after the fact of sales, after it's closed of account management. And when you look at heart, um, farming and you have existing relationships and you just get to work with a book of existing business and you build on it and you love those people and you continuously solve their problems and you make sure that you get retention and upsells and renewals and that the company makes a lot of money off of the clients that they worked so hard to go acquire. So you might be better suited for that. So that's step number one. Are you top of funnel? Are you middle? Are you after? Like, where are you in the sales cycle? And then the second part is, are you going to do better with a transactional high volume sale? Or are you going to do better with 
a long-term relationship sale. And I would also attach to that dollar amount. Are you going to be able to do high volume, low dollar, where you might be selling 10 products a day, getting 10 orders a day, or are you looking to get maybe 10 orders a year? What type I'm a complex problem solver. I would be so bored if I was sitting in a transactional role. I would hate it. I'd be like, this is the same thing every single day. I need mid-market. I need big, complex projects. I want them to take longer and I want them to be worth a lot of money because then it's a really fun win for me. And I love moving the needle in really big chunks, not tiny at a time, but that's just part of who I am. So I fit better. And the last thing to think of is selling a product versus a service. So if you're selling a product or a widget, something that you can demonstrate, hold, it's tangible, you can show it. It's actually very different sale from selling services or a nice to have or something that you cannot demonstrate. And so there's some complexity there. So if you want to set yourself up for success in a sales role, first, it just comes with identifying what kind of sales role do you think based on who you are as a person, DNA, your tolerance level, and also with your background and experience where you can be successful. So I think that's step number one. Step number two is specifically for women. You know, it's so different for me to talk about this now because when I was breaking into sales, it was total bro culture. And I just acted like one of the boys and I got, I fit in just fine. And so it wasn't an issue, but I've already talked about this. Looking back, I wasn't the classy young lady that I really wish that I had been, but I wasn't. So I can't change that. If a classy young lady is listening to this right now, (laughs) I want you to be encouraged that I think that sales leadership and executive leadership has worked very hard to create a very good environment with diversity, inclusion of not just gender, but people of color and others with different backgrounds. There's such a focus on this right now. I think entering into the sales profession now, regardless of who you are, I think this is a beautiful time to enter into the profession. And I, my hope would be is that you just stand your ground. So confidence will, you will wear confidence better than you'll wear anything else. And I would just, my advice to women is oftentimes in a competitive environment or in an environment that feels a little overwhelming, we might stay quiet. And so my encouragement is to be confident, is to speak up, is to communicate to leadership. If you want promotions, you want different roles, you have your eye on management or changing the world that you're in or going into a different division. If you're feeling like you don't have mentorship or you're looking for more education and training and guidance, speak up. And if you can just have a really great, lovely professional voice and also build really great brand and influence on LinkedIn and just make sure, like make it super easy for employers to say yes to you and what you bring to the table. And then also just with what you're giving back to the community and building your own network of brand and influence for sales is going to go a really long way. I, I thought it was really interesting that you even broke down where in the sales cycle applies to your personality, your style of selling. I haven't really heard anyone talk about that before. And also sales educators such as yourself are all different. Some of them are like, anybody can do sales. All, anyone is, is, is able to do sales. Some are like, it takes a very particular type of personality set. I feel like I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, but um, it's interesting because even some of the people who are super outgoing, super, uh, I guess, bodacious, Bodacious. Is that the right word? Not bodacious. Loud. Um, Aren't always the best salespeople. Sometimes it's those who are very analytical, problem solving, but they can bring that confidence to the table as well. Um, So it's interesting. Also, your point on speaking up too, I think is really great is uh, if if someone's going to be turned off because you're speaking up, you're probably in the wrong environment. 
Yeah, you very well may be, but you might also just need to check yourself and how you're communicating because some organizations that are a little behind in the game aren't used to confident women speaking up and that's okay. That's okay. We, we're, you know, we don't need to point fingers. It is what it is. So know your environment and be really calculated in how you bring things up. Be always be a part of the solution. Don't come across as bossy or complainer. Just talk about, hey, here's something that I identified or observed. And here's something I think that we could do. What are your thoughts on this? Is this something, you know, there's a way to go about it as a great communicator that's going to be there. Something I wanted to layer in, I wanted to ask you, um, how much do you know about BQ or the behavioral quotient? No, and that's, we're literally reading each other's <laughs> wavelengths right now because that was literally my next question was, what is a behavioral qu- quotient? Is that how you say it? Yeah, what, quotient. What is yeah. that? I've never heard that term before. And so, yeah, if you want to dive into that a bit. Okay. I think BQ is one of the most telling components of who's going to make it in sales. So I love your comment about are salespeople born or made is, is a simplified way of saying it. Can anyone be successful in a sales role with great training and mentorship and whatever? Can they? I don't think so because I don't think that everybody has the hustle and the get up and go and commitment to doing the work. So let me break it down for you. We teach something called the BQ method and behavioral intelligence or behavioral quotient is an area of focus for us in our work. If you break it down into four quadrants, so imagine this with me on the top, you have how you think, which is your mental mindset (laughs) on the top. (laughs) I love it. I love the visual. (laughs) So on the top is how you think. Your mental mindset is everything. When a piece of information first enters your mind, human beings, we do something really weird. We create a story. And it's either a positive story, it could be a negative story, or it could remain pretty neutral. But regardless, that story is going to enter our mind. And when it enters our mind, it's going to trigger our emotional state. And that emotional state could be positive, it could be neutral, it could be negative. And based on our emotional state, that's where our actions stem from. So if you're not in a good emotional state, what kind of actions are going to come out of that? If you're in a very positive emotional state, you're going to have great action come out. And then the last part of the quadrant is performance because your action yields the performance. So if you think about your thoughts and how you feel and your actions all as seeds, if your thoughts, words, and actions were seeds and you're planting seeds in the ground, the fourth quadrant is your harvest. So what seeds are you putting in the ground? The way that you talk to yourself, is it positive talk or is it negative talk? How do you process information? Does it trigger positive emotions or negative emotions? And then what are the actions? Probably the most important step of this is your actions. What seeds are you putting in the ground? Because if you're doing a mediocre job, but expecting extreme performance, you're crazy. You don't plant apple seeds and get oranges. You get apples. So if you're planting seeds right now where you're a little woe is me, you're kind of discouraged, your manager's driving you nuts, you're just really not sure if you're cut out for the role or whatever it is, if those are the seeds that you're planting, please guess what your harvest is going to be. Not great. But if you're planting seeds full of purpose and intention and you're serving people and you're working hard and you're diligent and you're making good conscious decisions all day long to do the work that's required to have great outcomes, you will succeed. So I look at BQ as one of the biggest hinging factors in a salesperson's performance. And I truly believe BQ is for all of us as human beings in life in general. So when you break it apart that way, I look at a top performing rep, they can be wicked smart. They can have really great IQ. They can be very high on EQ, emotionally connected, very good at mastering positive emotion. But if they don't do the work, 
what's the point? If you're super smart and you're really great emotionally, uh, introspectively, and also externally with your your prospects, your clients, your peers, your whatever, awesome. Those are great qualities to have. But if you don't do the execution, sales will not happen. You cannot close what you don't have in your pipeline. You cannot close the meeting that you didn't run. You cannot progress a deal that you didn't follow up with. You can't win a deal where you didn't go the extra mile for differentiation and just stand apart from your competition. If you don't do all those things, don't expect to win. And it's the reps that lose and they're surprised. (laughs) Why are we surprised right now? (laughs) Did you do everything you needed to do? Did you hit the mark in every single area? And sometimes we lose deals that we should have won and nobody can figure out why. But sometimes we win deals that we should have lost and we can't even figure out why we won. But you can have more predictability in sales. Sales is like, it it is never something you can master. Anyone could ever, ever master. That's a beautiful part and the scary part and the fucking awesome part about it is like, you just, you, you, you literally can never master the craft. No. No. Perfect. What, what kind of BQ do you have? How does that resonate with you? Yeah. Um, well, so you're talking about like one thing you mentioned was like personality traits, right? So mm-hmm. how do you assess that through like disc assessments or how do you assess that with your clients? Yeah, we're big on disc. We love disc. And for those of you that don't know what that is, there are four main personality styles and D is a dominant driver there. I'll draw some more quantities for you over here in the box. (laughs) Thank you for supplementing me. Of course. I got you. (laughs) The I is an influencer. They're super expressive. They're chatty. They love storytelling and they're super all about themselves. Um, The S is a steady person. They're super, they're super team player. They go along to get along. They're pretty adverse to change. They want to make sure that if a decision's made, or they do anything like everyone else is okay with it because it can't rock the boat. The C is your cautious analytical thinker. And this person is, can only really make decisions based on true accurate data and numbers. And so this person, this is like your buyer, not to go into the details here, but this is the buyer that says to you, I need to think it over. And if you're a pushy salesperson that doesn't, hasn't figured out that they're a cautious analytical thinker and you try some stupid sales tactic of, well, what is it that we need to think over and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and then you're like trying to push into a decision, you just lost because this buyer actually can't process without reviewing the data and the numbers and writing scenarios and reading the statistics and your backup data and checking your references and doing project planning and looking at dates and time. This, this is how their brain works. And so if you're pushing them and rushing them and not creating the space, you'll lose that deal. That was just one example. Every unique personality style, um, when you're looking at a salesperson versus a buyer, there's two components to this. So when we call it buyer BQ, we actually teach a class on this, but there's also a salesperson just going into how their personality relates to their BQ. A D is super high urgency and D salespeople tend to have really little patience and they just want to get the job done. They're so results driven. And I love D salespeople because you never have to slow them down. DI salespeople are fantastic because then they're also given the gift of gab and being able to tell stories and they can be more on the relationship side because sometimes a D kind of feels like a cold jerk in a conversation if they're not warm and fuzzy, which a lot of buyers really do enjoy that, but they can be great with another dominant buyer. 
But when you get into the S and the C, typically this is a challenging style when you're a salesperson. For D&I to sell to S and C? Well, that's a challenge in general because DIs are so high urgencies and yep. S and C are, they're slower, they're more cautious, they're skeptical. Like it's, it's just a different type of buyer. But if you're a C or an S salesperson, I've not seen many of them succeed. And I, I will say that a lot of it is urgency. So on the S side, it's lack of urgency. It's lack of drive. Also, they care so much about being a great team player. And there's a part of sales that's very selfish. You can do right by others, but you've got to move the agenda. You've got to keep things going. You've got to be on top of your game. You have to be the best. You've got to be competitive. And typically an S doesn't have that type of spirit. And a lot You're, of, it, not, not to cut you off, but I think a lot of, a lot of sales people don't realize that you have to help guide people. They don't know how to drive themselves. So if you're not being, see, and that's where the, that's where the disdain for sales comes from is like, I don't want to be a pushy salesperson. There's right. a difference between being pushy and like at some point to, to your point is you have to be able to like drive and push people forward. Well, and that's just mastering your craft, right? Like I've known a couple of salespeople that actually do really great, but do you know what they consciously have to do every time they're in a sales process? They have to do something different that is not their natural state. They have to purposefully drive an agenda because mm -hmm. you've got to keep it moving forward. And then D salespeople, I've seen be brilliant in it because they are cognizant of the fact that they could be perceived as pushy. So they tone it down. And when they're in front of the prospect, they're going to see and act in a way the prospect will see like, Hey, okay, we're really getting along. There's commonality. And so they just take out some of the pressure, but behind the scenes, they're fast paced and they're covering everything and they're doing everything that they need to do. But the C salespeople are analysis paralysis all day long. They overthink everything. Um, it's hard for them to be in a sales role also because a C person is not relationship oriented. They don't typically emote. They can be monotone. They are so data driven. They're also usually pretty quiet. They're not expressive and exciting and engaging when they talk to people. I mean, I don't know anything about that, but a C. <laughs> theater, theater had nothing to do with anything whatsoever. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's yeah. totally my DNA. But like. 100%. Depending what, where you fall on the disc. And you can be an SC. You can be an IS. You can be a DI or a DC or whatever combination. But just know who you are so that you can be super conscious and purposeful when you're selling because perception is reality. So you might be one of those, but how you show up for your client. And again, that's the action step of BQ, how you show up and execute, you get to decide. It's just, are you doing it from long-term memory in your subconscious state because it's just who you are? Or are you bringing it to the forefront? Are you purposeful? Are you consciously ensuring that you are a certain way? so that you can set yourself up for success. And I don't know that everybody has that talent to do that. Yeah, I, it's, I, so I'm the high, you're wondering about my score or whatever. I'm highest, highest possible D, highest possible I on the spectrum, like mm -hmm. the, like whatever the highest score on those are. And, um, and I've lost more business, more deals, not knowing how to navigate those more analytical people who are very, every single checkbox, every single thing, you just get, you know, you just, you, you, you like oversell it and then you lose the deal. Right. So um, I think it's, it, it is important. That's good that that's part of your assessment too, is where are you at? And one thing I am curious on your end too, how do you assess where your buyers are at? How do you know where they are on, on the spectrum mm -hmm. without literally giving them a test and knowing how to sell to that 
personality type? Oh my gosh, there's a million ways to tell, but you have to be looking for it and you have to make it a point. You have to you have to be conscious about it. I need to uncover who my buyer is quickly out of the gate so that I can I can pivot, I can shift, I can adjust, I can adhere to the way that they're going to want to buy. And it's my favorite thing initially is asking, like if you're doing a Zoom meeting, you can, if you're waiting for other people to join or if you just want to open up with a soft question of how's your day going so far? A D is going to be really straight to the point, want to get down to business, want probably start driving the agenda for the meeting. It could be a one word answer, but you're going to see them actually get annoyed with the question because they're not there to make friends or they're there to do business. An I is going to give you a five minute answer. It's going to be all about them and they're going to use their hands when they're talking. They're going to use a lot of adjectives and vague terms. An S is going to timidly say, um, it's, it's gone well, thank you. And how's your day? So the key that you're looking for is the S is always going to ask you, how's your day going? It's the one of the qualities that we'll ask because they care more about other people typically than they care about themselves. A C is going to give you really specific answers. It's going to be short and there will be no emoting. Mm -hmm. So it'll be very dry. And it's going to be short, but it's not going to have the dominance of a D in driving the conversation to next steps. So just with that one question, you can see how they'll answer. And then also you can generally make assumptions about people based on their role and the company they work for and the industry that they're in. So typically executives are going to be a D, either DC, if they're more on the operations and numbers side or finance side, a DI, if they're more on the CEO, president or visionary side or straight D. Then as you get into more relationship-oriented roles, like a, a CMO or a CHRO, like a HR professional or a chief talent officer, people that deal with people in relationships, they're going to be on the DI. People that deal with uh, technology and finance and operations, they're going to be on the DC, on the executive level. Because an I will lose their mind working in a technology or a finance role. They will hate it because they have no attention to detail and they are not going to get stuck in a granular conversation. So again, it's generalized terms and it's not always 100%, but you can also generalize based on those roles. And typically, hear me out, typically your end user, your influencer, the person who is not in a management or decision position is typically going to be in a C or an S or an I role. They're not going to have the D component. And then you'll find great functionaries and end users in the S role. They are critically important to the team and being the glue in that. So you can just typically identify. So if you have somebody who's in more of a people role, like marketing or HR, but they're not a decision maker in an authoritative position, they're probably an, an SI. If it's somebody that's an end user in accounting, finance, technology, operations, they're not going to be more on the relationship side. They're going to be a CS. I'm sorry, an SC or a CS. But that's where you can make some assumptions going in based on their role, their title, the industry that they're working in. And then you ask that one question. And then I would just say, like, be great in your discovery questions and just start to identify early in the conversation and then test your theory. So once you're starting to say, okay, I think this person is a D, change your approach, trim it up, be more direct, use terminology that will resonate with them about bottom line and results and moving things along and watch them. See if they physically change, if they become more engaged, if they lean forward, because now you're speaking their love language and they're engaged in the conversation. If they're still not reacting, then you might need, you may have been wrong on your guess. You may need to pivot or ask better qualifying questions. Or if they're not reacting, it's because they're a C. <laughs> Cs don't react <laughs> to anything. But, you know, I hear you. I lost a lot of business too. 
And I alienated a lot of buyers early on because I wasn't willing to be a chameleon and adjust and mm. pivot and change. I was who I was. Maybe had I was a loud. perception of what sales was also. I think that's lost me a lot of business. Oh, for sure. And then I wasn't, yeah, yeah, there is. There's a terrible perception. I always say there's, when we train, I say, it's not you. It's the millions of salespeople before you that went and ruined it for you. I know you're amazing. <laughs> I think that's fair. Well, it seems interesting and it, it seems that there's a fine balance. People don't want to be manipulative. And I think that's a, a challenge for those who are new into sales and or even veteran salespeople. I don't want to learn these things because I don't want to be manipulative. But then when you really understand, you've mentioned a lot discovery process. I've talked to a lot of other sales leaders, coaches, trainers, that that's like part of it, but really more just understanding how to sell that person no matter what it is. But I think discovery process. Um, so it's that fine balance between am I manipulating people or am I actually if I'm able to help them knowing how to help them the best way in a way that speaks to them. So it's not getting lost in however their brains wired. Yeah. And be willing to walk away and disqualify prospects. And I think you earn a lot of respect with that. And I had to learn that the hard way. I tried to sell everyone and everything because <laughs> I thought everyone was going to buy for me. And I love, you know, there's some innocence in that being a new salesperson. I'm like, why doesn't everybody buy? Yeah. Don't they all buy? <laughs> Well, they took a meeting with me, so that means they're going to buy, right? But I think the assumption factor, it actually bode well for me because I was always shocked when I lost a deal. But I started to learn, thankfully, <clears throat> from my manager to dissect why you're losing and look for trends as to why you're losing and to, if you're brave enough and if they're willing and able to solicit direct feedback on why you didn't get the deal. And I did start to notice that there were, there were pieces that I needed to shift in my approach. And part of that was disqualifying. I didn't learn how important that was um, until later in my uh, first year in sales. I was just trying to sell everything I possibly could because I cared so much about the fame and recognition <laughs> of being number one with style points. But I realized that I was actually creating some chaos in my pipeline and trying to make things happen. So you use that word manipulative. Um, I think super competitive, high driver salespeople, you used the term pushy earlier too. Like I think that can be a byproduct of it. That you're just trying to do whatever you can to get a sale. That's not the answer. You've got to send prospects on their way if they're not the right fit. And when you kick out this, uh, this qualified prospects out of your pipeline, then you've got room for people that are really set up to buy from you and be great clients. How do you actually do that? Like, what's the phrasing for disqualifying someone? Is it just, hey, um, I, you know, this is great. I, I'm not sure there's a fit here right now. How are you actually technically going about doing that? Because that's a problem for me even to this day. How many, with how many sales scenarios I've been in, it's like, there's always that deal you end up closing and you hang on to it throughout the cycle because you're like, maybe there's a chance here because I've done it before. But I agree with you. You got to disqualify more people. Yeah, I, I just like to be very upfront and honest and say, I don't think I've heard enough here. That's going to justify you making a switch. Like, I love that you reached out to us. I love that you're really interested in solving this problem. My concern is that the investment I'm going to be asking you to make, I don't think that the problem is hurting you enough that is going to justify making that investment. And then I will I'll, I'll directly correlate it to, uh, you know, the, our, the fee for our service is equivalent to fill in the blank. And really the problem that you shared with me, I think it's kind of minor. I'm wondering more if it's internal processes fix. I don't think it's a technology or vendor problem. I think it's how your team's going about it. And I've been 
doing this for a long time. I'm more than happy to give you a couple of ideas, but I just think a few minor tweaks, changes internally you're actually going to be in a really great spot and it probably makes sense to stay with your current provider. Or if I hear that I'm competing against somebody else, it's really a lower cost option. We might be the premium version of it and it's a lower cost option. I will just push into that and say, I really don't feel like we're the right partner for you. I think it may be too much with where you are. I think you're too early on in the process. I think you're too small of a company. I don't think you're quite there yet. I'm worried that you will come onto our service and this is what you'll experience. And then it'll leave you feeling like this. And I want to avoid that at all costs. So this is really interesting. Stepping out of role play is it's psychological. Salespeople don't take away the deal from prospects. So one of two things will happen. One, they agree with you and they are so thankful that you just took it away because it's really hard for some prospects to say no to salespeople. And so they're relieved and they will agree with you very quickly and they will thank you. The other type of prospect will try to sell you on all the reasons why. And that is incredible when that happens because then they immediately flip and reverse and they're like, Connor, wait. No, we are. I'm sorry if I came across that way. No, you're right. You probably were picking that up because of the story that I told her. And then all of a sudden they start selling you and you're like, whoa, I was laid back. They're going to close the deal for me. And, but it's masterful because you did the right thing by them because you weren't trying to push them onto the service or sell your product. That is an amazing point pivot. And that's cool that, that you shared that. And people think selling is telling, but much more getting like the other person doing 90% of the conversation, mm -hmm. you're doing 10% of the conversation, getting them selling themselves to you is a master, masterful trait that I'm still trying to learn and refine at this day. So look forward to studying more on you um, on, on that. And on that note too, what, what else, what, you know, wrapping up here, what, what else is top of mind? What do you want to share? What do you think would be important and vital um, takeaways information wise for anyone listening to this right now? You know, there's a lot going on in our world right now. And a lot of people um, in my industry specifically, like sales trainers, uh, they're really rushing and doing a good job of communicating out like, hey, salespeople, here are some things that you can do. I want to make one thing come to life. I've seen a lot of my peers and sales trainers saying lead with empathy, lead with empathy, lead with empathy, align with the buyer. But a lot of uh, salespeople can't translate that. They're like, great, so I'm going to be empathetic. So they're going to open up every sales call with like, Connor, is your family safe? Are y'all doing okay? We're all in this together. I know we're in unprecedented times. This is <laughs> uncharted territory. How have you all, you know, okay, I get it, but I don't blame salespeople because most of them have never sold through a situation. Wait, has anyone ever sold through a pandemic? Anyone looking around? No, no, not you. So what is leading with empathy? I think the greatest thing that you can do right now is be curious and do some research. Come in with a value statement. So based on the industry that they're in and the title and the role and the problem that you solve with your product and service, I want you to build an equation that would then put it in their terms with the current circumstance. And so you're going to be able to research them before you do your outreach and make it very specific to them. Hey, Eric, as a chief financial officer in medical manufacturing, I can't begin to imagine what has happened with you. I've done a little research on your company. I've been following some of the LinkedIn posts so that I can stay abreast of what's happening. It looks like you all are treading water and doing okay, but sometimes that's just a public facing front. 
what is happening on the back end. So there's a way to lead in with a sentence that's very inviting, but it's also not generic. Like, I hope you're doing well during these unprecedented times. Like do some research and have a value statement. If a salesperson were to reach out to me right now as CEO of Sales BQ, and knowing that we're in an industry that typically when economic times get tough, we get crossed off the list because we're deemed as a nice to have. And so if somebody reached out to me and was able to pull that together and do a very custom outbound message like, hey, I'm thinking about you because typically with those that work in the world of sales consulting and training, like this is what we have found. And I you know, started a conversation with something that I would actually read or listen to if they called me. So that's just my advice. We're in really troubled times. Be a brave and kind person right now. Ask really, really good quality questions and be okay if the answer is not today. Beautiful. I think that's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for your time. And how, uh, how can everyone find you, follow you, get in contact with you? Find me, Mary Grothy, G-R-O-T-H-E is the last name. I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram. And then my Twitter has my middle initial, L, Mary L. Grothy. Find me there, connect, love to hear from you. Beautiful. Grothy. You got one of those names too. I'm Doobie. And, and it's like, do people would always say Doob. I'm sure people call you Mary Groth. Nonsense. All the time. All the time. I actually had to listen to one of your podcasts to be like, oh, it's growthy. Yes, I'm not going to screw that one up. <laughs> well, um, this has been awesome. Again, thank you so much for sharing. And uh, for all of you listening, again, make sure you give her a follow. Make sure you go reach out. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and we will see you over on the next one. 